kind of stemmed from the fact of, and I, maybe you guys remember these videos. The youth had no idea what I was talking about, and so maybe you guys can remember. Do you remember those uh, what would happen next videos on YouTube? And we, we at our old youth group would always use the cat version. So the cat would start to jump from something, and it would be like, is it going to make it or is it going to miss? No one still? Paul, Colin, you guys got to remember this. You don't remember this? That's what I'm saying. At Starkey, we did these videos. Yeah, okay. Yes. When it, what happens next? Pause, cat, middle air. Okay. This is why we didn't play the video, because most people didn't understand what I was talking about. But then what sparked for me with this whole topic tonight is uh, when I say, how many of you, by a show of hands, have ever had an intrusive thought? How many of you would raise your hands? Like an intrusive thought is one of those things where like, you know it's not going to end well, and you know you probably shouldn't follow through on the thought, but you do it anyways. For some of us in the room, I probably just hit a trigger of like their dating life. Right, like their whole dating life is in, is in, in <laughs> but, but here's the one that I have. Uh, I started seeing the videos. Who knows the myth, right? If you hold a cat, and you let go, it's gonna, it's gonna land on its feet, right? So, so when Jess, when Jess is out of the house, my intrusive thoughts kick in, and I grab our cat, Winston. And I see from how high and, and what angle he won't land on his feet. He's been pretty successful. He's also a chunky boy. So, like, there's sometimes he lands kind of on two paws. It's fine. He doesn't limp too bad. Um, but, and then I was, I was expressing this in chapel this morning. And then the thought was, remember how we always say, like, butter toast lands butter side up? What? You never heard that one? Yes. Mythbusters, Mythbusters did prove it. So what would happen if you buttered a cat's feet? Intrusive thought, right? It's, I'm saying, you, can, you can cause a lot of energy for like a city, man. Like we just solved like world energy loss. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, yeah, we need, to, we need to get back in here. So here's the truth. Okay, Romans 1 through 3 pretty much tells us what? That we're all sinners. sinners. Romans 1 through 3 is like the most amazing chapters in the Bible, because all it does is it tells us we're sinners, right? Romans 4 through 5 really tell us that it's by grace through faith, right? It's not these religious works that these people were doing. It's not these uh, full grace, I'm going to go sin, so grace may abound type mentality either. It's, it's there's this one message. It's, it's by grace through faith that you shall be saved in the name of Christ. And then chapter 6 really started to hit for us what, what we covered last week is is a genuine gospel is going to produce what? Say it aloud. Genuine fruit. genuine fruit. I like that one of my points at least stuck. I'm, I don't even think that was one of the main points. It's fine. It's good, though. And so here's, here's where we're going to kind of dive into. So, so there's this amazing theologian, and I like to throw weird names at you guys, and you probably can't even know how to spell them because neither do I, and that's why it's mistyped half the time on the papers. But Louis Burkhoff is one of the most amazing pastors from the Reformation, um, he's also an awesome theologian, and this is an area that I think a lot of us struggle in, and it sometimes might not even be a word that we know in our faith walk, which is the word called sanctification, right? When we get saved, when, when we surrender our life to Jesus, we become what? It starts with a J. Justified. We are, it's justification. We are made right 
in the eyes of God. It's that whole, we are now at peace with God so we can get peace from God, right? We talked about that. We always love peace from God. We like to feel peaceful, but we first have to remind ourselves that we must be at peace with God. And so there's some truths that come with that, right? That we are sinners in need of a savior. We're disconnected. Christ is the only one that can reconnect us to God. There's all these truths linked up with it. But what, what happens in between us getting saved and then the moment that we finally get called home to be with Jesus. And that's where a lot of times the church can get kind of scary with what they teach. Sanctification can be a really scary thing if we don't get it right. If, if you've been here for any length of time, we sometimes like to call it just the perpetual puberty stage, right? Sanctification, like th- between now and when we finally get home to Jesus, it's awkward, right? Like, we're going we're gonna to have really high highs. We're going to have really low lows. We're going to have weird middle seasons where we feel distant and we're just wandering around the wilderness, right? Like, we're going to have all these different moments. We know that we belong to Jesus. But then there's moments where we're like, what in the good Lord is happening? Like, I have no idea. One minute we're up here and we're serving the church, and the next minute we're having to take a step back because of something that we messed up with. Not that we're no longer a believer, but things had to take place so that we could find restoration, right? And so all these highs and lows, sometimes we're serving so much that we have to take a step back, right? To find peace, to find our centralness around Christ again. And I want to read this definition from Lewis Burkhoff, who I kind of summed it up for him, but it's on your papers. But he relates sanctification like this, right? It's, the, it's like the process of a child being birthed and then maturing, See, a baby is still fully human, yet it's imperfect and unmatured in a lot of processes. So is the believer who is saved. We are fully saved and justified, yet still working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Paul tells us, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. There's a process in in, in experiencing life now that we're made new, now that we are from death to life. There's a difference in us. If you were to put a dead person next to me and ask us both to do something, I'm going to be able to do it. Why? Because I'm alive. The dead guy is dead, just as we were once dead in our sins. Ultimately, we cannot do what it is to please the Lord until we have the right relationship with him, which is when in Christ Jesus we are made alive. There's two big heresies that I want to make sure that we tackle today. There are two big false teachings that I want to make sure that we, if we ever heard it, or if we might have inklings that we might believe it, that we can press into it tonight. The first one is something that we called as a sinless perfection, right? People read in scripture sometimes that you have now been um, made holy as he is holy, right? He has wiped away your sin. He has has paid. You're now dead. You're now alive. Some of us then tend to now teach in the Bible that we have this thing called sinless perfection. You're like, Mitch, what in the world is that? Well, pretty much it's a doctrine that says this. In short, it, it holds that it is possible for the Christian to completely defeat sin in this present life and live holy lives like Jesus did. That pretty much the way Jesus walked his whole life, we could do the exact same thing now that we have Jesus. At a glance, this makes a lot of sense, right? Jesus came to save us from sin. He died for our sins on the cross, and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower his people to overcome sin and to live obedient, rejecting all sin. However, we cannot negate what the Bible also 
tells us. So in Titus 2 is where we see that live obedient, live righteous in the present. But also, the Bible says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1.8. It speaks the fact that until the resurrection, we must be at war with sinful desires, Galatians 5.16-17. So to be able to sit there and, and walk into a room and go, hey, I'm saved, I no longer sin, I am holy, you should probably listen to me. If I walked up here and said, hey, what made me become a pastor? Why do I have the right to be a pastor? Why do I have the right to teach you the word of God? Well, it's because I'm completely sinless. And you can be completely sinless too. You never have to worry about a single thing again. You will no longer sin. You will no longer feel pain and suffering. You might even find some money in the stalls in the bathroom at Joel Osteen's church. Right? Like that's how blessed you're going to be. I would pray that I would never have even gotten to this spot if that's what I preached and that's what I believed. I pray that you all would yell at me if that's what I taught. Throw tomatoes, run riots, maybe knock down a wall in here. The football team already did it over there, right? Amen, Indian Rocks. No, I don't know if it was them. It might not have been. I have a suspicion. So that's the first one is this sinless perfectionism. It's this, it's this reality that you can just become perfect this side of heaven. The other one is something called hyper-dispensationalism. Really big words, but in short, this is pretty much what it means. It's a heresy regarding sanctification and how it completely divorces sanctification from justification in such a manner that is necessary of sanctification in the Christian's life is completely denied. So pretty much what it's saying is that they completely deny the fact that from being saved to going to heaven is really awkward and hard. It goes on to say, this is an ancient form of what we call antinomianism. Really long word, and I can't speak. There you go. It's a Gnostic belief, and pretty much what they say is this. We hit this actually last week. You ready for this? You can be saved, right? You're going to heaven, but you don't have to follow Jesus if you don't want to. Right? Because Jesus came to save you. Now, if you want to be a next-level Christian, then you can become his disciple. Right? If you want to take your Christianity to the next level, unlike these carnal Christians, as we call them, the ones who, like, they're saved, but they still live like sinners. If you want to be better than those people, then you can become a disciple. Then you can let Jesus become Lord of your life. And again, that's a false teaching because we see just simply from one passage alone in Romans 10, 9, and 10, we have to be able to believe and understand that he is both Lord and Savior to be able to bring us justification and sanctification and glorification, right? If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead three days later, then you shall be saved. Because he is Lord, he is Savior. We can't divorce two awesome truths of Jesus just to make ourselves feel better in our sin. But there's also a really big thing that we have to get right before we go into Romans chapter 7. See, Romans chapter 7 is a very funny passage in some ways. Because a lot of people, when they read it, they, they track through 1 and 6, like this is Paul presently talking about the truths of Scripture and, and even in 6, it's talking about that struggle, right, of being a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And all of a sudden, they get to Romans 7, and they're like, oh, this is Paul talking about before he got saved. 
This is Paul talking about what it is to be just a blatant sinner that doesn't have Jesus. And so I hope and pray as we walk through this passage, you will be able to see that, again, is a falsehood. Because if we see what it's sandwiched between, Romans 6 is all about Paul stating that it is by Christ alone that we are saved. And if that's the case, we are now slaves to righteousness. We don't just run around doing whatever we want because now Jesus has set us to be free, right? Go sin more, so grace shall abound. Absolutely not. But Romans 8 then follows it up. And it hits on how being made alive in the Spirit with Christ now gives us the ability to live daily in the Spirit even when we struggle. And so we're going to pick up Romans chapter 7 in verse 10. Let's dive into verse 10. It's kind of hit on everything that we've been talking about, and hopefully and prayerfully this will show you where we're getting to. Romans chapter 7, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So he's talking about the law. If you look at the title, most Bibles are probably saying the law and sin. So the very commandment that promised life Proved to be death to me. 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So a few of the things that we really need to wrap around first and foremost is that we have, nine times out of ten, a really bad understanding of the law. Right? When we read the Ten Commandments, most of us are going... A, we jive with that. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, don't kill people. I think most of us agree, like, we didn't have plans after this. And if you did, please come talk to me. We'll stop you. Right? No need to kill somebody. You know, don't covet after your neighbor's wife or husband. That's a, nah, actually, in this day and age, some of y'all need help. Um, don't do it, right? If somebody's taken, then God clearly didn't have them for you. And you think I'm just making this up. No, I've witnessed this. I've heard these things. We've walked through these as a church. And churches all over walk. And it's, and it's this weird, it's come about with this whole um, just free to self mentality that we are our own truth, right? Truth is relative. Love is love. So why in the world can't I say that I'm the right woman for that other guy who's currently married to my best friend? See, in their eyes, it doesn't matter but to us, we, there's already a clear thing that says, listen, don't covet after somebody who's already married. I'll put it a step forward. If they're already in a relationship, like if they're dating and you're like, ah, he just needs to wake up to the truth. Not your job to wake him up to the truth. If it's God's plan for you, he'll put you guys together. Amen? All right, we're all on the right page so far. See, the, the, the law is good. There's good things about it. Even the weird ones where it's like leave a whole line of crops around your field and harvest everything in the middle. Why? So that the sojourners that are passing by can have food to eat so they do not starve on their journey through. Generosity, kindness. All these laws have such bigger implications if we saw them in the right light. But what do we do? We see them in our sin nature and we go, uh, that's like $400,000 worth of corn that I'm now not harvesting because somebody's walking really far. That's greed, right? And so we have to understand that first and foremost, before we understand the rest of tonight's passage, we have to understand that Paul's making it very clear. The law is good. The law is so good. It's holy. It's righteous. 
But because we are sinners, it's countercultural to what we believe to be normal. Right? A husband shall leave his family and cleave to his wife. Right? That the fact that Scripture even teaches us that it's one man and one woman. The fact that Scripture tells us that marriage is an oath. All these things are so good if we get them in context. And if we can just set aside our sinful goggles for just a few moments, we could see how good the law is. And if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of times when the Bible offends us, it's because we already know that we're at fault. But we'd rather be offended than convicted. The law is good. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? Again, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond belief. So here's that question again, right? Did you become a sinner the moment you sinned? Or did you sin because you are a sinner? That is the question we have to ask ourselves, right? And if we believe the sinless perfection model, then yeah, neutrality is key in a lot of ways. If we just stay neutral from birth, we're pretty good, right? And all of a sudden, it just spirals down into work-based salvation and all these different things. No, rather, what it's saying is the law is a mirror, right? Because we are sinful people, God gave us the law so that we could actually understand what it meant to have a right relationship with him. What does it mean to actually follow his standard of holiness? The law is actually a great thing. Because it said sin even reigned from Adam to Moses. It's not that those people are unaccountable because the law didn't come until Moses. They were still sinners. But in redemptive history, God brought along the law and said, listen, as my people... I want you to be set apart. I want you to be different. The law is a good thing. So instead of sin corrupting the law, actually the law really just shows us just how bad our sin is. I can make it pretty quickly home down Almerton as long as I don't see a speed limit sign, amen? A lot of the guys in here are like, yep. But as soon as I, the speed limit isn't the thing that's causing me to speed. The speed limit's just revealing to me that I'm speeding. And having a motorcycle in Florida is just a bad idea anyway, so don't do it. All right, we're moving on. Verse 14. This is, the, this is the chunk where it gets really confusing if we don't follow along with it, and this is why I want to simmer in it and get to it tonight. So verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And this is that crescendo moment to say, like, we can't do this on our own. If we do not have Jesus, we're going to fail no matter what. 
So this is kind of that capstone message where it says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what keeps me, uh, keeps, I keep doing. I knew I was going to mess up somewhere in this. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. See, this language is so key for us. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know many sinners who are willing to say, I do the very thing I hate. Like, screw Jesus, but I still kind of hate it because it's sin. What? Like, the only guy who can tell you and reveal to you that this is sin through his holy word, you don't like, but then you're still going to agree with him that it's sin? Nah. So I do the very thing I hate. Doing what is not natural to the sinful flesh is a good thing. He's saying when I do what I do not want to do, it's good. I agree with the law. We want good, but we will still achieve bad things. See, in salvation, our desire now sees the law as good, yet the flesh that we deal with this side of heaven wages war against it. That's why we've talked about this is war of faith. And I think so many of us in the room tonight are, are really coming into our own of what this war is truly looking like in our walks. It's so easy to not really get hit by the war when we go to a Christian school or we get raised in a Christian, a good godly Christian home or we are always surrounded by nothing but Christians, right? It's, it's easy to be almost offended because you're not at the front of the rank anymore. You're kind of tucked back in, right? The war is not as scary when you're like 15th string, right? You're not seeing all the guys on the front line drop just yet. But when you're front and center, when you come into your young adult age, when you guys are now going, getting careers, going to college, moving out, getting sometimes forced out at 18, whatever scenario you might be in, you're now coming to realize, I can't rely on Mima's faith. I can't rely on Bible class every single day to teach me the word of God. I can't rely on those chapel services. I can't rely on those friends that I had in homeschool. Right, like those, those really tight-knit, close-knit cohorts that they're Christian, so they're teaching you stuff, and you start to carve wood, right? But how much different is it? I want you guys to think about that for a, just a moment. If you got saved at a younger age, it was kind of cool. There's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of barricades. Like when we go to, if you ever go to camp, right? It's a whole week and you're just in this protective like dome almost. You're just around a whole bunch of believers. It's so easy to be bold in your faith at camp. It's so easy to be bold at your faith as soon as you walk through these doors at 6.30 and then leave by 10 and then you can just be that, that deep, broken down, like wavering Christian after you leave. It's easy to fake it when you're inside the culture, But where are you standing when the war is looking you dead in the eyes? Ephesians 6, everyone loves it, right? You got the sword and the shield and the boots and the belt, the girdle, right? Gird yourself with truth. Like we got the whole set. We're like, yes, we're going to war. What does he say? He says, stand. 
And I think a lot of us, when we're out on our own, college, work, those friends that we know don't go to church, that bad relationship, those sinful desires, those bad temptations, we're not standing so tall in armor, are we? It's easy to stand when you got your brothers in arm, the 300, right? It's easy to stand in confidence when you got your brothers and sisters around you. But all of a sudden, your knees start to buckle a little bit. Hands start to shake a little bit more when you're on your own. When you're left to your own thoughts. When you're left to your own devices, sometimes literally, right? We're not standing so tall in the armor of the Lord. And this is why I brought up those intrusive thoughts. Man, because sometimes they're just funny, right? Winston's alive. It's okay. Like those intrusive thoughts, I'm down with. My cat's fine. I might get yelled at later, but it's okay. Actually, this is the second time she's heard it. I'm not in trouble yet, so. Like that's, that's a joke, right? But that intrusive thought that comes about when you're like, hey, what if I just call him up? What if I just pursue her one more time? What if I just have that one more sip? One more smoke? What if I allowed myself to dive into that addiction just a little bit longer? You know, I've done really good. What if I just bring my phone into the bathroom one more time? Seeing those intrusive thoughts. The fiery darts of Satan against our armor. This is war. The Christian life is not an easy life. Some of you might get sick of us poking fun or or bringing it to light, and some of you might just think we're annoying at this point, but this is why we want to show you the messages of false teaching so clearly. Because all of those who tell you that as soon as you get saved, all it is is health, wealth, and prosperity is a bold face lie. The moment you get saved, you start to see the war. I've said this once before, and I'm going to say it again. I think the most dangerous thing a Christian can do is this. The most dangerous thing that we as believers can do, especially in this day and age, is forget what God has saved us from. The moment you forget the power of the gospel in your life, you're not standing in that armor anymore. It is dangerous for us to forget the power of the gospel, even as believers. Verse 21. So I see it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See, Romans chapter 6 told us very clearly, you went from being a slave to sin, you're now a slave to righteousness. I, I don't know you, uh, about you or not, but, but here's the big thing is uh, if I lose like something near and dear to me and they go to the other team, 
It's like when we played dodgeball, right? You want that one kid who's just got the rocket arm, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go help out the other team, right? And you're like, dang. <laughs> like now you're just mad, so you're just going after that kid, right? You're trying to take him out first. See, Satan is ticked. Why do you think, why do you think we brought up these three that are, that are going to be getting baptized on Sunday? I said it in another message. Getting baptized is the biggest political statement you could ever make in your whole entire life. Because you are now saying, I no longer belong to the prince of this world, but I, be I belong to King Jesus. You have changed kingdoms. You have changed citizenship. You have say, changed family. It's about to get like Hatfield and McCoy up in here. Finally, you guys got a reference I give. All right, good. See, it's, sin and Satan want us to be blind and happy in our sinful desires. The longer we can be blinded by the instantaneous joy that this world gives and not have to pay attention to God or his word or the conviction that we feel, Satan has won the battle. But that's the beauty of having the scales being removed from our eyes. It's like Paul being blinded and then the scales fell. And I can't imagine what that's like, but man, it's, it must be like my contacts coming out when they're really dry. I don't know. It feels really good. But he wasn't, he, the scales didn't fall and it wasn't just all greenery and bunnies and Bambi running around, was it? The scales fell off from his eyes and it was a whole bunch of people that had every right to be royally ticked at him. And yet, God spoke to him and said, hey, you're going to pick him up, you're going to walk with him, you're going to train him, and I'm actually going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my glory. That's the call of all of us in this room. The gospel is a call to suffer the side of heaven for the namesake of Jesus. Why? Because it doesn't compare to the eternal glory of going home to our heavenly father. It does not compare one bit. So how do we combat this? How do we combat it knowing that now that we aren't blind to Satan's tactics and our sin nature, how do we combat when those intrusive thoughts come and our sin nature rears its, its, its ugly head towards us? What are we doing? And this is that crescendo moment. This is, this is the victory plan for all of us. It's very in-depth, very long. It's uh, two verses. First and foremost, remind yourself who you used to be without Jesus. Look at Paul. Wretched man that I am. How many of you, that, what an affirmation in the morning, right? Walk up in the bathroom, just write it, you are wretched. Yes, getting the job today, <laughs> right? But he's making it so clear, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, when we are putting ourselves on the throne of our heart, we're losing the battle. But as long as we remind ourselves that Jesus sits on the throne, 
And what does that look like? How do we do that in our life daily? Well, it's through humility and submission. It's through humility and submission, taking ourselves off the throne of our hearts and surrendering it daily to Christ. Daily waking up and saying, you are king, I am not. You are Lord, I am not. You save, I can't. If we can remind ourselves of those few truths, you're going to have a way more peaceful day no matter what's about to take place. Because you know that you are a son and a daughter of a sovereign God. Peter them in Acts, they prayed, O sovereign Lord, who decreed all these things, give us boldness to proclaim your name. They knew if they reminded themselves who ultimately was sovereign and in control, that they were going to have a lot more peace in the midst of darkness. So what do we do? And I think, I think this, Romans near the end of it, just a few chapters after this, Romans 12. Renew, renew your mind daily on what? Renew your mind daily on TikTokers who give you Christian inspiration? Uh, renew your mind daily about the guy who has the weird pamphlet on the side of the street yelling at you to turn or burn? Uh, does it say renew your mind daily about the weird... Uh, Bible study that they're doing like ayahuasca on the beach with a drum circle, but they read scripture once in a while. Is that, is that where we go to renew our minds? No, it says renew your minds daily on the word of God. Do not be transformed by this world, but by God's word. So as we fight this battle, as we wage this war of faith, this might seem like the most Bible-esque points that I want you to take home tonight. But first and foremost, it's your prayer life. I had someone come up to me about the questions on the sheet, and they're like, well, we do this all the time. Great. A lot of us also forget to do it. Hence why we're making it a point to do it here together, because this is a family who's waging war together. You want to learn how to be boosted up during the week? Build relationships in here so you talk with people throughout the week. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. We don't just do it naturally. So we pray. We are a people of prayer. Bible reading. You want to hear from God? You don't have to starve yourself and go on weird cryptic walks in the desert. You don't have to go sit on the beach during sunset to feel like you're the closest to Jesus like you've ever been. You want to hear from him? Just open your Bible. Read the word. You want to talk to him? You have a direct ear. You don't need saints. You don't need Mother Mary. You don't need crystals. You don't need yoga. You don't need burning sage. You don't need any hot garbage this world says you need to be spiritual. You just need to get on your knees and bow your head in submission to God Almighty and cry out to him as his child, saying, I know you're in control. Now remind me who I am to you. And he will show you through the Bible, but he'll also, also show you through this. Get, for the love of everything holy that is good, that is awesome, that is great, get plugged into a church. My goodness, and I am doing, I think, really good on time, so I'm not going to let myself go down this rant, but I'm going to rant for just a hot second on this because we're talking about it in big church because we're going through Acts. 
if you think church is the only beneficial means by when you're sitting alone in your car listening to worship music? No. If you think church is in full when you're watching it online? No. If you think church is all these fancy buildings and hottest commodities, it's also not that. But scripture gives a very clear mandate that we should not forsake the gathering together as believers, encouraging each other to do good, stirring each other up in love and good works. I can stir you up and encourage you a lot better in person than over text. Why do you think when someone's about to take their own life, they're not going to go, oh, thank goodness he talked me off the ledge through a, through a text message. Nine times out of ten, it's because someone took the time to drive and go see them in person, to find them, to meet them, to be with them, because presence matters. why we have shepherds like Pastor Aaron and all these other pastors on our staff. Why is that important? Because leadership matters. Read Acts. The church was being formed. Someone was taking data. Someone was literally going, hey, 3,000 got added today. Hey, 2,000 got added today. What were they being added to? They were being added to something. There was organization. They literally called out the seven, the first deacons, right, to assist the pastors, protect the unity of the church, and to uh, further the ministry of the gospel. There is structure to a church. Why? Because we're all broken, sinful people, and God is calling people to certain positions and to do certain things so they can equip the saints. Ephesians 4. Plugged into a church. And if you want to get plugged in here, man, come talk to us. There's plenty of people in this room who call this church home. But if you go somewhere else, man, as long as it's a Bible-believing church, I'm going to championship that all day long, as long as you're plugged in calling somewhere home. Why? Because there's people who are held accountable for your soul. When I go to heaven, I will be held accountable for every single one of you and how I shepherd your souls through the word that I've preached and the ministry that we put forth together. The same for our youth. Pastor Aaron, for all X a thousand of people who walk through these doors, we are held to a double standard. God is very, very jealous and holy and and in love with his church. Why? Because it's the body of Christ. 95% of the problems you all are dealing with is because you don't have genuine community. First and foremost, you need to get back in community with God. Second, you need to get in community with believers. It changes everything. And so as we go into our groups, that's why that last question is there, or that last statement is there. Go around the table and share with the group one way in which they can encourage you this week. Because I think sometimes we get in habit around here, around the tables, that we just, we answered all three, we're done. All right, now let's talk about sports. Well, let's talk about the weird third-level theology thing that I have had in my brain ever since Mitch taught. How about we actually, I don't know, stay on track and pray for each other? How about we stay on track and actually simmer in what God's Word had just spoken to us? It's a beautiful thing when all of us remember that we're all on the same playing field. There ain't a single person in this room that's more holier than another. So let's bow our heads, let's bow our hearts. We'll enter into this time of prayer and then we'll go into small groups. But 
Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you that you stand firm, you stand true, and you are unchanging. God, thank you that you've given us victory in Christ. And that no matter how bad the war might seem, no matter how crazy and dark this world might get, God, you told us that Christ has the victory. God, you show us the end when the lamb who was slain is sitting on the throne. God, if there's a single person here in this room tonight, who they, they, they're going, man, I'm blind to this whole thing. I have no idea what is even going on. Lord, I pray they cry out to you tonight and they say, open my heart and my eyes to what is truly going on. Open me to the reality of my sinfulness so that I may surrender it to Jesus, so that I can be born again. God, if there's someone who's finally wrestling with the gospel here tonight, Lord, I pray they don't leave here without surrendering their life to you. But God, I pray that all of us in the room tonight, as we answer the question on the tables and we are encouraging each other and talking with each other, that we remind ourselves that the gospel is daily medication. We don't need no chicken soup for the teenage soul. We need the gospel. Let us remind ourselves of the gospel daily. Father, we love you. We thank you. We just give this time over to you to be encouraging, to be challenging, and to be stretching. We love you. And we pray this all in the Son's name, Jesus. Amen.